What are the seeds that bring you to spiritual practice? What are the seeds that brought you to a retreat like this particular one? I'd like to begin this evening with a few questions. Questions that human beings have felt and asked forever, regardless of culture, regardless of society. These murmurings of the heart, the deep questionings, the deep yearnings that have been going on as long as there have been human beings. What's life about? What's death about? Who am I? Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What do I need to be truly happy and at ease in this life? Can I or how can I live gracefully, peacefully in this life with all of the challenges and difficulty, difficulties in this changing world? with all of the challenges within me and all around me. What is it that brings me to practice? I suspect that these kinds of questions have shown up in both subtle and more overt ways at times in your own life. Our practice isn't about getting caught up in mulling over these questions. But rather, the questions can be taken in as a motivating force and an inspiration towards dropping more and more deeply into our practice. This evening's talk is about an urgency to awaken. The Pali term for this is samvega, which is most often translated into English as spiritual urgency. But actually, it's a term that, that's somewhat difficult to render into English because it includes quite a number of uh, different mind states. In the classical Buddhist texts, this uh, samvega is uh, spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice and one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice by what should move one and then the systematic effort of one so moved. Samvega is the urgency to practice, the urgency to awaken. And it isn't an energy that's at all fraught with a a tension or a franticness or an obsessive quality. It's a quality of mind that most often comes out of some degree of understanding, some degree of understanding the way of things understanding the natural laws, how it is, which for some of you may have been sensed at first as the 
endlessness, the round and round and round of daily life. Or for others it may have been felt through some degree of perception of change, the perception of impermanence, anicca, and the attendant unsatisfactoriness, the unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. Or samvega may be felt through the feeling of the enormity or maybe even the subtleties of suffering in life in general or the suffering in one's own life. For some, the urgency to practice, the urgency to awaken comes from what might be a long accustomed or even a new sight or because of one's own direct experience of the manifestation of bias or prejudice in relationship to race or gender or age or sexual preference. Each and all of these experiences and feelings attended by some vague or maybe not so vague sense that it doesn't have to be this way, that there's another way, and an urge to move towards this potential other way. When some vega first stirs us, it can be an emotional state that might be somewhat difficult or disturbing until it finds a clear and healthy direction to connect to. While right along with this, this stirring of the energy of Samvega has the power in itself to move us, to move us towards this clear and healthy way, this clear and healthy direction. And I think that it's uh, quite important to note that continuing all along the way of our practice, Samvega is an essential and motivating energy of successful practice. From my own experience, I would describe Samvega as the feeling of being stirred and inspired by a sense of spiritual urgency, by phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process, my own heart, and by phenomena that goes on in the world around me, happenings that I may be uh, directly involved with in some way or that I'm simply an observer of. Samvega is the movement of the heart, the movement of the heart, an inner response to the various occurrences that happen within and outside of formal practice times. And for me, it's an inner response to let go, to let go deeper into my practice. It's really this flavor of Samvega that moves me and stirs me again and again towards letting go, towards relinquishing the painful contraction 
however strong or subtle, of clinging to anything. When Samvega is present, it may sometimes be experienced as an urgency or sometimes as an ardency, an inspired heart, an inspired mind, a passion, we could say, for spiritual practice. Something that I'm sure at least some of you, if not all of you, have felt at times. And at least in part, maybe what brought you here to this retreat. As a Dhamma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity in and with your practice moves me. It inspires me. And I think it's uh, safe to say that this is true for all of the people that I've had the honor to teach with. This is really one of the wonderful aspects for all of us here right now, yogis and teachers alike, of living in a practice community such as this, even if it's just for a very short while. We move and we inspire each other towards deeper and deeper levels of practice. So more specifically, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what along the way of our practice keeps urging us, moving us towards sustaining and deepening our practice? What might move us outwardly and inwardly towards this sense of spiritual urgency? What moved you to come here to practice now? To come to this retreat? There's a beautiful account of how Prince Siddhartha Gautama came face to face with what are called the four heavenly messengers while being driven in his chariot through the royal city after all of his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. The account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. Maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphor, considering the possibility that these four messengers, these four very common events of life, old age, sickness, death, and though not so common in our time and culture, the many and quite obvious truth-seekers that were so much a part of the time and culture that Siddhartha grew up in. So considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these common aspects of life, much more deeply than had ever occurred before. To such a degree 
that he was urgently moved to leave the riches, the ease, and the comfort of his life. Urgently moved to search for the truth. Inspired and moved to be liberated. Inspired and urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and the familiar habits of his life. And the overt suffering in life that touched him so profoundly during those morning chariot rides. Isn't it really the same for us that most of the time with the many, uh, t- many times that we've seen these same, very same messengers in our own life, both outwardly and inwardly, we've reacted. Reacted by maybe ignoring them or by distracting ourselves in myriad ways or even by pretending or believing that something else is happening until somehow at least one of these messengers touches us deeply. And then we respond. We respond, in fact, in a similar way as did Siddhartha, by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth, a path of wisdom. We're somehow stirred at some point to walk a different path than constantly feeling overrun with sadness, anguish, or fear, or attachment, or maybe anger, or confusion in relationship to the occurrences of life. Our closest surroundings are really full of stirring things. Stirring in the sense of samvega. If we don't generally perceive them as such, isn't it really because of our habits? The habits that, in fact, render our vision dull, our heart insensitive or reactive. And this can even happen in relationship to the Buddhist teachings. We may have encountered times in our practice life of very powerful intellectual or emotional or spiritual stimulation in relationship to the teachings and the practice. But at times, even this, this impetus can lose its freshness and its impelling force or maybe, as maybe some of you have experienced. The remedy is to constantly renew by turning to the fullness of life around us and within us, which is constantly illustrating the Four Noble Truths in ever new variations illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is, and then showing us its cause, its origin, 
being the clinging relationship with what can't be clung to. And then the third noble truth, that's the second noble truth, and then the third noble truth, the truth that there's an end to this suffering, the solution, so to say, the solution being to not cling. And the fourth truth being the way of putting the solution into effect via the path that each of you are engaged in walking at your own pace, right here, right now, in this, in this very life. As very likely some of you have experienced and know, there can be a moment of direct vision within your own body-mind experience of these truths. Or quite unexpectedly, a degree of understanding of one or more of these truths can show up. For instance, with what might be a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear, anger, grief, yearning, or clinging. Or insight, wisdom, might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long-accustomed sight of some manifestation of poverty, or maybe a weeping child, or the distress of someone you regularly have some degree of contact with, or maybe in relationship to an unaccustomed connection with the physical or mental health of a loved one, or one's own illness, or bodily discomfort, or myriad other flavors of experience. Each having the power to startle us, to promote a reflective response, and to stir a sense of urgency and our resolve to practice this path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Through seeing our own experience of body, mind, and heart directly, clearly, and more subtly, we might be stirred and moved by seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, selfless, and impersonal nature of things. Something that, of course, is very available to all of us. A moment of knowing the impermanent nature of things. A moment of knowing that it's all anatta, it's all impersonal. Phenomena just arising and passing naturally, according to conditions. With these moments of seeing and knowing, we're often urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path, to go deeper towards the end of suffering. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday, ordinary, conditioned habits, to step out of our conditioned inertia, 
we each have many, many stories, many experiences that come out of our pursuit of a spiritual life and within our life as a whole. Stories that in fact exhibit this knowing and the manifestation of Samvega. And very often it's part of what's heard in talking with you during interviews. There are a number of wonderful stories and dialogues in the suttas telling of the Buddha's disciples being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual urgency. The stirring being done by the Buddha himself or the stirring being done by one of the enlightened disciples, the arahants, or by one of the practicing devas. Devas are beings whose practice has brought them to be dwelling uh, for lengths of time, sometimes long lengths of time, in beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened, aren't yet enlightened, aren't yet free of suffering. There's a section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called the Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various woodland dwellings approach certain bhikkhus, certain monks, who are practicing in those woodland thickets. And I'd like to share a few of these encounters with you. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. And on this particular occasion, the bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for his day of practice. But all the while, he kept thinking thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that monk, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove, man, the desire for people. Then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. And in this case, lust meaning not necessarily just sexual lust, but lust for things, for food, for various objects and various experiences. And the deva goes on, you must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you that the way of the good, hard to cross, indeed, hard to cross indeed is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil will, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust, so a bhikkhu, so a yogi, strenuous and mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. This next dialogue takes place shortly after the Buddha's parinibbana, after his death. His closest attendant and cousin, Ananda, had been very strongly encouraged to attain arhanship 
before the first Buddhist council convened, which was scheduled to begin during the next rains retreat. So Ananda had gone to the Kosalan country and entered the forest, his forest abode, uh, to meditate. But when the people of that area found out that he was there, they continually came to him lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt that he had to constantly instruct them in the law of impermanence. The forest-dwelling deva there, aware that the upcoming Buddhist council would only succeed uh, if Ananda attended it as an arahant, came to provoke and inspire him uh, to resume his meditation practice. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now, on that occasion, the venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for the venerable Ananda, desiring his good and desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking. Having entered the thicket at, a foot of, at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart, meditate, Gotama. And he called him Gotama because Ananda, being the Buddha's cousin, had the same uh, uh, last name, family name of Gotama. Meditate, Gotama. Don't be negligent. What will this hullabaloo do for you? Then the venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. And I, I picked this particular dialogue because um, though uh, none of us are in the same position that Ananda was, uh, we're certainly often quite caught up by the seeming necessity to engage in the hullabaloo of all different kinds of circumstances, both externally and internally, and neglect or maybe even lose our practice and instead go for these things. To me, this little verse beautifully and very clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear. And of course, not neglecting what needs to be attended to but to know when we're seduced unnecessarily and maybe even inappropriately into the hullabaloo. And another verse. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling in Vesali, in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, an all-night party was being held in Vesali. Then that bhikkhu, lamenting, as he heard the clamor of instruments and the gongs and the music coming from Vesali, recited this verse. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a dog rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for this bhikkhu, 
desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. This is the Deva speaking. As you dwell in the forest, all alone, like a log, rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state, a forest dweller subsisting on alms food, with few wishes, content. Many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those in heaven realms. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next verse is regarding a bhikkhu who continued thinking thoughts of ill will and harming, as well as uh, thoughts of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods one day. The deva, who also inhabited this same woodland area, out of compassion and wishing uh, to stir up some vega in this uh, particular monk, spoke uh, these verses uh, to the monk. Because of, of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, meaning relinquished attending to things as permanent, as self, as desirable because they're pleasurable, having relinquished the careless way, you should reflect carefully meaning attending to their true characteristics, the characteristics of impermanence, not self, and thus things being unsatisfactory in nature. You should attend, you should reflect carefully. And then the deva goes on to say, by basing your thoughts on the teacher, the Buddha in this case, on Dhamma, on the Sangha, and on your own virtues, you will surely attain to gladness and rapture and happiness as well. And when you are suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. Then, of course, that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The last verse I'd like to share with you is about a bhikkhu who, after returning from his daily alms rounds and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced, every day um, after that he would go down to a nearby pond and um, smell a red lotus. When the deva who lived in that same thicket saw this, she thought this. this is, these were her thoughts. Having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So, out of compassion, 
and wishing to stir up some vega, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows. And the uh, title of this little sutta is called, excuse me, The Thief of Scent. And this is the deva speaking. When you sniff a lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds, I do not take, I do not damage, I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva. When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is you that I ought to speak to. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's lip of evil, appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu, surely, spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. Please, O spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the deva speaking is kind of a surprise ending. We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So it seems that amongst those of us then and uh, now, those who over 2,500 years ago were devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha, and those of us right here and right now, it seems, in fact, that things haven't changed very much. Our human predicament crosses time and cultures. The teachings are really timeless. The solution that the Buddha offered to our karmic predicament is as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were spoken. When Samvega is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy and courage that helps the development and the blossoming of faith and confidence. Each of these qualities, energy, courage, faith, and confidence, are essential in helping us to break through what, for some of you, might be a sense of maybe timidity or hesitation or fear or doubt or even complacency. The Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his followers to arouse some vega. In speaking to a group of disciples in one sutta, he says this, 
Rouse yourselves. Sit up. What good is there in sleeping? The sleep meaning the sleep of ignorance, the sleep of delusion. For those afflicted by disease, meaning the dis-ease of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction. For those afflicted by disease, struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there? Rouse yourself, sit up, resolutely train yourself to attain peace. Go beyond this clinging to the pleasurable, of the six sense doors, to the pleasures of the six sense doors to which most humans and devas are attached and which they seek. Do not waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of suffering, confusion, and anguish. And he goes on to say, negligence is a taint. So is the greater negligence growing from it by earnestness and understanding. Withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards practice is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency, the ground of samvega. The Buddha was so confident in the solution that he found to the predicament of the unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth, aging, and death, which is actually occurring moment to moment in our life, breath by breath, that not only does he ask us not to close our eyes to this reality, but to also engage in a moment-to-moment observation of the cycle and to be completely honest with ourselves in the process. The Buddha's confidence was so clear and strong that he called uh, the reality of suffering the first noble truth, which from this perspective we could say is a gift, a gift that confirms our most sensitive and direct experiences of things. And then from the gift of the first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering is not out there somewhere, not coming from some outside thing or some outside being, but that it's coming from in here, in here, in the craving and the clinging and the fear that's present in our own heart, our own mind. And then the Buddha, in his great confidence, coming directly from his own experience and often using himself as an example, 
confirms that there's an end to suffering. That there's a very available release from the cycle. And he offers us a way to that release by the development of particular noble qualities of heart, noble qualities of mind, moral or ethical responsibility, sila, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, joy and happiness, tranquility, concentration, equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, faith, and confidence. All of these qualities and capacities really sprouting from the original energy of spiritual urgency that led us at one point to look for a solution to our predicament. Our predicament has a practical solution. A solution that's with really, really within the power of every human being. A solution that we begin to have a growing faith in. Possibly if we read and study the many stories, the many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. But really most importantly, that we come to know out of our own direct experience through our own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates samvega and is the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency, out of samvega, develops out of samvega. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows, develops, and deepens, it, in a sense, is what gives us the energy to live. The last story I'd like to share with you this evening is perhaps a somewhat unlikely one from the contemporary writer Annie Dillard, a story that I found to be very inspiring and that invoked a sense of spiritual urgency in me the first time that I read it, many years ago now, and that continues really to move me every time I read it. So these are a few excerpts from a chapter called uh, Living Like Weasels, from Annie Dillard's book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. Last week, I startled a weasel who startled me, and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I've never seen one wild before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruitwood, soft-furred, alert. His face was fierce and small and pointed as a lizard's, he would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into silence as he was emerging from beneath an enormous, shaggy, wild rosebush four feet away. 
I was stunned into stillness, twisted backward on the tree trunk. Our eyes locked, and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else. A clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain, or a sudden beating of brains, with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs, it felled the forest, moved the fields, and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. This was only last week, and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing. And the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data, and my spirit with pleadings. But he didn't return. I tell you I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds, and he was in mine. Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes. But the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular, but I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity, and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast, where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked and ingested directly, like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, even of silence by choice. The thing to do is stock your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even, till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds and let your very bones unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me 
the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. In the light of Samvega, it feels appropriate to share some of the Buddha's last words just before his death. Words offered to his monastic and lay disciples to instill a sense of Samvega in them, to exhort them to keep going along the path. And this particular quote is from a somewhat expanded version of these words that comes from the Tibetan version of the Parinibbana Sutta. O bhikkhus, O yogis, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent, are of a nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in life is precarious. Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether moving or non-moving, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. I'm about to cross over. This is my final teaching. In closing this evening's talk, we come back around to the opening questions. As Mary Oliver, in her own way, poses them in her poem, The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down in the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, 
how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And let's sit quietly for a moment. And we'll close our evening together with chanting the sharing of blessings. <laughs> 